0: a kid, one of my favorite books was this book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Anybody familiar with this book, read this book as a kid? Yeah, it's an amazing story of one day that goes wrong in every way for this boy named Alexander. He wakes up and first thing he realizes that the gum he was chewing the night before is now in his hair. He puts his foot outside the bed and steps on his skateboard that he left there the night before and falls. He goes into the bathroom to begin getting ready and his sweater falls into a sink with running water and it's now covered, ruined. And then he heads downstairs to eat breakfast and he is the only one in his family that does not find a prize in his cereal. And at that point, he declares, I want to go to Australia. And that's his refrain all throughout the book. Whenever anything bad happens, I want to move to Australia. And bad things happen on the way to school, at school. It's just a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. What I learned this week, though, is when the book was printed in Australia, they changed the story because obviously they're already there. So if you go to Australia or New Zealand and find a copy of this book, what it will say when Alexander gets overwhelmed is, I want to move to Timbuktu. So that's where he wants to go there. But, but I wonder, you know, do you ever have one of those days where where it's going so bad that you begin counting down the hours till you can go to sleep? A few days ago, my kids were like, no, no, I don't want to have to go to bed in two hours. And I'm like, I've been counting down the hours since 12 o'clock. Um, I'm so excited for us all to go to bed. But you have one of those days that this day cannot get over fast enough. And those are hard, those are frustrating, but typically you go to bed And you wake up the next morning and you feel a little bit better. Maybe you feel a little bit more hopeful. Maybe you feel there's a little bit of possibility with this new day that hasn't begun yet. But sometimes those days start stretching into a longer period. And what happens when you feel like you're in the middle of a long, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad season? Everybody has a day where they are a little bit tired, wake up on the wrong side of the bed. But when that's your season, and it just feels like one thing after another, the hits keep coming, what do you do then? If you were to rewind the calendar two years from this time in 2020, I think a lot of us were living through a season like that. In early March 2020, uh, I already felt overwhelmed. We were dealing with a couple of leadership challenges here at the church that were keeping me up at night. And, uh, and I was so excited for my kids to go on spring break and have a little bit of a breather. And In the middle of spring break, my wife and I were excited for what was coming the rest of the spring. Our friends were getting married in Cancun. We had bought plane tickets and hotels. We'd gotten somebody to watch our kids for five nights, which is a lot of work. Um, And so on a Thursday in the middle of spring break, we learned our kids are not going back to school. They're coming home and they're going online. And by the way, we're going to be working online too. And church that we're going to have here is going to be a lot emptier for a little while. And that wedding in Cancun, it's not happening because no one's going to Cancun. Um, And it just felt like in March of 2020, it felt like all of us were Alexander and all of us were having a no good, terrible, very bad year. And if you can touch back into the emotion of that, then I think you're going to be able to connect with the setting of what we're going to talk about today in the life of the disciples. Because they were living through inner turmoil. They were living through their inwards being like an inner tornado. And Jesus spoke right into their challenge. And here's what he said. This is our big idea for today. Jesus announces himself as the answer To our turmoil. Jesus announces himself as the answer to our turmoil. Today we're going to be in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. And if you're new to the Bible, John is about 80% of the way through the Bible. It's just after Luke and before Acts. It's written by a man named John, ironically, who was one of the closest disciples of Jesus. And we're walking in this season as we prepare for Easter through the seven statements Jesus makes in John's gospel about who he is. The subtitle of this series is, Who Does Jesus Say That He Is? We're looking at Jesus's identity in his own words. He said things like, I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world, and I am the gate for the sheep. And last week, our friend Chris Inman taught us about, I am the good shepherd. And today, we're going to move into the fifth statement Jesus makes in John 14, And I'm going to invite you to stand with me and follow along as we read God's word this morning. This is Jesus speaking here at the beginning. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, but believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know the way to your going. How can we know the way? And Jesus told Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus, we pray that we would experience you in as much realness and intimacy as the disciples did in this moment. Some of us are in the middle of real turmoil today. Some of us have turmoil happening all around us, and some of us have turmoil happening deep within us. And we pray that you would meet us in that turmoil today and speak to us powerfully and clearly. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Now one of the things I try to remind you often is to understand what's happening in a moment in Scripture. In these short seven verses, you have to understand what's happening around these verses. When it comes to studying the Bible, context is king. So let's talk about the context of this passage. What's going on around the disciples in this moment? Well, this section of the Gospel of John is referred to by scholars as the upper room discourse. In John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, the context for this moment is the upper room where Jesus is enjoying the Passover with his disciples. This is the moment that da Vinci records in the Last Supper painting. Now, I will tell you that though this is a very famous image, it is not an accurate image. They probably didn't pose for a selfie in the middle of the Last Supper. Okay, everybody, can you, are we all in here? Does the camera catch us? That probably is not how it happened. Also, it's not accurate to the times. They're all sitting on what appears to be benches, where in the time it would have been a low table and everyone would have been sitting, you know, a crisscross applesauce, if you have kids, um, on cushions around the table. And they would not have called it the Last Supper. They would have just called it Supper because they didn't know it was going to be the Last Supper. It was just Passover, something they'd experienced many times by this point in their life. And the dinner conversation that they have while they're experiencing this meal is this upper room discourse in John 13 through 17, where we're going to be for the next two weeks. So that's what's going on around them. Well, context isn't just what's happening around you. Context is what's happening inside of you. And the disciples had just walked through a harrowing set of uh, revelations in the last few days and weeks. One of the commentators that I studied in preparation for this message kind of summarized the things the disciples had learned. And it kind of felt for them, like I think it felt for a lot of us in March 2020, where it felt like every device and every moment and every bing or ding on our phone was delivering another set of bad news. Because here's what the disciples had learned just in a short period of time. The disciples, this commentator said, were completely bewildered and discouraged. Jesus had said that he was going away, that he would die, that one of the 12 was a traitor, and that Peter would disown him three times, that Satan was at work against him, and all of the disciples would fall away the cumulative weight of these revelations, according to Edwin Blum, must have greatly depressed them. In a short period of time, they learned that Jesus was going to go away. He was going to die. They they learned that one of them was going to betray him. That's Judas. Peter was going to deny him three times against strong protestations. Satan was at work against them. And at the end, all of them would fall away. It was bad news after bad news after bad news. They were living their own, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And you know that at certain points, that kind of kind of consecutive and stacking bad news can become like a burden. See, sometimes our burdens are our decisions we need to make. Sometimes they're, they're illnesses or relational challenges. And sometimes it's just the weight of bad news. Because for the disciples, the world as they knew it was about to radically change, and they had not been asked what their vote was. They were completely out of control in this moment, and their world was inner turmoil. So if, if you at all, in the last few weeks, or even if you can just go back to the last time in the past, you felt that feeling, that's how the disciples felt in this moment. We all think how exciting it would be to share a meal with Jesus, but this was not an exciting meal. This was a devastating meal. And that's why Jesus begins where he does. So today I want to talk to you about how we can overcome our inner turmoil, because I think that's what Jesus's goal is here with the disciples as he speaks to them. And here's the first thing we can do. We can trust in God by trusting in Jesus. Jesus. Trust in God by trusting in Jesus. The very first thing Jesus says at the beginning of chapter 14 is this. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. Jesus is acknowledging that their heart is troubled, that there is turmoil, that there is a reason that they're struggling. He acknowledges that and he says, hey, don't let yourself go there as if they do have a choice as if they do have a say in that matter. And his next statement to help them do that is to say, hey, believe in God, but believe also in me. And I have to tell you, the first time I read this, as I was preparing for today, I was a little bit frustrated with Jesus. It's like, believe in God. That's it? Just believe? And I think sometimes when we read that passage, we think a little bit like the stock photo right here. You know, just believe in God. You know, just smile but the image that's present in the greek word that we translate believe is so much larger than than smiles and happy thoughts it's this idea of putting your full weight and trust on something i have this uh, stool with me today and it's one thing for me to look at this stool and go you know what i have sat on this stage And used stools like this. So I have a belief that this will hold me. I've seen other people earlier today sit on this stool. And they didn't fall. It looks fairly well constructed. The paint is still fairly fresh. I believe in this stool. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. The word that he uses for believe involves action. And it requires you to actually put your full weight and trust on him. See, you don't really believe in him until you actually take action with that. Not smiles and happy thoughts, but the full weight. You say, Scott, this is a pretty simple explanation. I've heard it before. Okay. Well, what are you doing right now in the middle of your trouble though? See, the challenge for most of us, and I include myself in this, is when you find yourself in inner turmoil or you find yourself in the midst of trouble, most of us, our knee-jerk reaction, our natural response is to depend on ourselves, To put the full weight of our life on ourself or to put the full weight of our life and trust on other things. Well, I I lost my job, but I have a good savings account. You know, uh, the stock market's going a little bit like this, but, you know, I I think I saved enough. You know, things are not going well. I'm going to reach out to this person. You know, I'm not really feeling good. I'm going to reach out to that thing that I'm going to eat or drink. Retail therapy is always a good idea. And it's when we're in inner turmoil that we reveal what, what it is that we believe in. Not by what we do with our thoughts, but where we go with our trust. And what Jesus is inviting his disciples to do is he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Put the full weight of your trust on me and depend on me even as you feel the world spinning around you and inside of you. And what Jesus does here, he tries to help us recognize that when he says believe in God, we're not talking about some nameless, anonymous God. Lots of people say, I believe in God. But often that God is fairly nameless and fairly anonymous. What Jesus is saying here is believe in God, but believe also in me. That Jesus reveals to us who God is. It's one of the purposes of this section of John. In this section of John, Jesus mentions the father 55 times, 55 times in five chapters. Jesus talks about his father, and he's going to end this passage by saying, if you have seen me, then you have seen the father. Jesus is saying, hey, if, if you believe in God, believe also in me and put your full weight and trust in me. John ends his gospel with this statement. But these, this whole book, are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life, zoe, fullness in his name. If you're in inner turmoil today, Jesus is saying to you, trust in me. Put the full weight of your life on me and depend on me in the midst of, of your turmoil. The second thing Jesus says to those of us who are in turmoil is hold on to his promises. Hold on to Jesus's promises. Now before we go and read the verse, I want to remind you what Jesus has not done. He has not removed the circumstances that are causing turmoil. That's what we all want though, right? I mean, we're all praying for God to do his will. We're all praying for God to accomplish his purposes. But deep down, if we're honest, a lot of us just feel like, Jesus, this would be a lot easier if you could just remove the circumstances that are causing so much turmoil in me. The disciples could have said, Jesus, it'd be a whole lot easier. We wouldn't be so troubled if you didn't leave us. It wouldn't be so much turmoil or trouble if you would just stay and you didn't die. It wouldn't be so much turmoil if one of us didn't betray you or we didn't fall away or if you could keep Satan from coming after us. It'd be so much easier if you could do that. But what Jesus does not do is remove the source of the turmoil. I just want to note that as we continue on here. Verse two, in my father's house, he says, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Like he wouldn't do a bait and switch on us. If I go away and prepare a place for you, Jesus says, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Now you've got to understand, this is why the disciples are in so much turmoil. Jesus is continuing to double down on this. I'm going away. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to die. And this is why they felt so much struggle. One of the things that I've discovered in the last few years is that when someone in my life leaves, I struggle with some feelings of abandonment. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you let yourself get close to somebody only for them to leave. Maybe you were married once and that person is gone and you have feelings of abandonment. Maybe your parents died way earlier than they should have. Chris talked about that last week. And sometimes those feelings of abandonment become our response to turmoil, and we become afraid of that even in advance. We cling tightly to people and say, don't leave me, don't leave me. And the, the disciples are feeling a little bit of pre-abandonment right now. Jesus is saying, I'm going away, I'm going to die. But he gives them some promises in the midst of those feelings of abandonment, three in particular. The first one he promises them is that there is room for you in God's house. There is room for you in God's house. Now, a lot of ink and a lot of talking have been spilled over the last 2,000 years over what Jesus means in this section. I could spend the next, you know, month trying to help us understand all the different ways you could understand this, but a couple different things I'll give you here. There are a number of scholars and believers over the centuries that when they read this passage, they believe that it is speaking to Jesus' bodily return to come and take us to be with him in his presence, in his house, in heaven. And when he says, there's room for you in my house, there's a reference to that. There are a number of other believers throughout the centuries and today and scholars who believe that his reference to his house is to his church. In John chapter 4, Jesus speaks to a woman at a well and he says, a day is coming when the people who worship me will not worship in a place, but they will worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus calls his, his disciples who are going to be the places where his spirit dwells, he calls them his temple, his house. So whether he's referring to a place in heaven or in his family, what Jesus is saying is there is a place for you here. There is room for you here. And in my house, there is room for you. So don't worry about being left out. Even as right now, you're being worried about being left behind. There's room for you here. The second thing Jesus says is that he's going to prepare that place. Now, when I first was taught this passage, I was taught that somehow Jesus had to go back and finish the job of preparing heaven for me. Like he was gonna leave and go channel the same spirit he put in Chip and Joanna Gaines, you know, finish the construction projects in heaven. But I don't think Jesus is just behind on the date he gave his father for the construction of heaven. I think when Jesus says he's going to prepare that place, He's speaking about this, the cross. Because we cannot go and be with him until he does what he needs to do on the cross. Until he does what he needs to do in the empty tomb. And it is not ready for his disciples to be in his house until he does what God has called him to do. And so when he says, I'm going to prepare, he's saying, I'm going to the cross. The final thing Jesus promised them is he's going to take them to himself. As a pastor, I have lots of conversations with people about heaven. It's a question often comes up, came up this week. Hey, Scott, have you ever thought about X? What heaven might be like about X? I read something somewhere about heaven in this way. Does the Bible say that? Does the Bible teach that? I have lots of conversations with people about heaven. Part of that is being in a community where a lot of people move here for the final season of their life. We have conversations about heaven. One of my greatest frustrations in those moments is there is a common absent uh, ingredient in those discussions of heaven. You want to know what that common absent ingredient is? Jesus. Let me give you a little bit of heaven math for you. Heaven minus Jesus is not heaven. And if your excitement for being in heaven, if that picture is complete and Jesus is not in it, you've missed something. Jesus didn't come and say, hey, I'm going to come and take you to the best house you've ever had. Hey, I'm going to take you to the best body you've ever had. Hey, I'm going to take you to the most comfortable life you've ever had. He's saying, hey, I have come to take you to myself. And if that's a letdown, you need to reexamine your view of heaven. Because if you're more excited for a, a, a stuff than your savior, your longings are misaligned. And Jesus says here, I will come and take you to myself. And to me, I don't really care where that is. Because if I get Jesus, I win. If you get Jesus, you win. Everything else is bonus. And that's the the comfort he gives his disciples. You're feeling abandoned. You're worrying about being without me, but don't worry. I'm going to prepare that place and I'm going to take you to myself. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. The third thing he says to them is embrace me as the way, the truth, and the life. If you're in inner turmoil today, part of the solution is embracing Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Here's what Jesus says in response to Thomas. Thomas in John 14, 5 says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I've said this before. I said this in our at the movie series back in December in the midst of the Polar Express message. Thomas gets a bad rap. We take one moment in the life of Thomas and we label him for eternity. We call him what? Doubting Thomas. That is totally not fair, and it is totally not biblical. Jesus didn't nickname him that. He didn't nickname him denying Peter. He didn't call John Mark, who ran off so fast his clothes fell off, naked Mark. He didn't call him murdering Paul, philandering, adulterating, murdering David. We don't call him stumbling Moses. So why do we call him Doubting Thomas? I'm sticking up for my boy Thomas today. (laughs) Stop calling him Doubting Thomas. What he does here is awesome. Jesus says, you know where I'm going. And Thomas is the inner all of us who says, Lord, um, we don't know where you're going. I love Thomas. Everybody needs a Thomas in their life. Everybody needs to be that person who says, "Um, Jesus, I don't understand it. Can you go over this again? He says, I am the way, Thomas. I am the truth and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him because you have seen me. So let's break down what he says. He says, I am the way. Followers of Jesus so gravitated to Jesus' statement here that for decades, this is how they define themselves, followers of the way. Christians were first called Christians as a put-down by outsiders in Antioch. Christian means little Christ, and it was a, a term of sneering. Disciples of Jesus called themselves followers of the way because they so believed Jesus was the way that they were continuing to walk in it after he left. Now, when Jesus says, I am the way in that culture, it wouldn't have been nearly as scandalous as it is in this culture. When you say there is a way, oh what's up, tough guy? There's only one way? Here's how our culture sees things. Don't believe the road signs, Bryant McGill says. There is no one way. If it's your truth, then it's the right way. There are many paths beyond the rules of limited thinking. Trust your instincts. See, our culture says there's not one way, there's many ways. There are as many ways as there are people Whatever is your truth, pick that way, and it's good for you. And Jesus says, no, no, I am the way. And part of the reasons he can say that he is the way is because he is the truth. Jesus is the source of all that is true in the world. Several years ago, Pastor Tim Keller, who's a pastor in Manhattan, was on a panel with a number of other religious leaders of other religions He was sitting next to a Muslim cleric, and they were talking about their different faiths. And when it came time for the Q&A in this session, a young man in the back raised his hand and said, I don't really understand it. All of you guys seem to basically be talking about the same thing. I think you guys are all just different ways to the same source. It doesn't really matter what you believe. It all seems to be the same. And the Muslim cleric said, son, I don't think you understand. What that guy believes is not what I believe. We're actually making different statements, and we're claiming that there are different ways. After the event, Keller says, but as I spoke to him a bit afterwards, I concluded that this young man was motivated by an underlying fear. If he granted that any religion made unique claims, then he would have to decide whether or not those claims were true. He didn't want the responsibility of having to ponder or weigh it all and choose. It may seem to get you out of a lot of hard work, but the idea of equivalence of religions is simply a falsehood. Every religion, even those appearing more inclusive, makes its own unique claim. But Jesus' claims are particularly unnerving because if they are true, there is no alternative but to bow the knee to him. Jesus says, I am the way, and part of the reason he says that he is the way is because he is the source of truth. He is the truth, but he also says, I am the life. And he can say this because he is the source and creator of all life. All life has its origin in Jesus. John begins his gospel by saying in the the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus was there in the beginning when God spoke creation into existence. And since then, all of humanity has been searching for the good life today thousands of people are moving to this area to find the good life. They've been saving and preparing and waiting months for their houses to get built to move to this area to find the good life. And Jesus is saying, life is not found in a place or a thing, life is found in me. And Jesus can say that he is the way because he is the source of truth and he is the creator of life. Now, I know this sounds really exclusive, but what Jesus is doing here is he's making an exclusive declaration with an inclusive invitation. He's making an exclusive declaration. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Again, in our world, it seems terribly intolerant and arrogant. But what Jesus does here is he makes an exclusive statement and then he invites everyone to it. At the end of the day, all religions are exclusive. But the gospel of Jesus is the most inclusive of all. Go talk to a Muslim cleric or a Hindu priest or a, a Buddhist um, guide. Go to a Mormon church. Each religion is declaring what they believe the way to God is, and each of them is exclusive. But what Christianity does and what Jesus does is say, everyone is looking for a way. Everyone is looking for truth. Everyone is looking to life and it is found in me. But if you find it in me, there is room in this house. There is room in this way for everyone. And Jesus goes on to say that if you know me, you know my father. For now, you've known him because you know me and you've seen him because you know me. What Jesus does is he says, hey, you're walking through inner turmoil. You're searching for a way forward. You're searching for truth. That's why we're so obsessed with what's false and what's true, what's fake news and what's fact-checked. We long in our hearts for truth because God put that longing there. We long for life, and he says, I am the answer for all of those things. So what do we do with what he said? Well, that's in the back of your handout. I've got a couple of next steps for you this morning. What I encourage you to do today, before the day is done, is to name the source and nature of your own turmoil. And a couple different options. You could write it down in a journal, or you could tell it to a friend. There's a study that was recently done at UCLA. And they brought people in who were dealing with inner turmoil, people who were dealing with intense emotions, people who were dealing with depression, anxiety, grief, and trauma. And they put them under the newest scientific uh, machines that measure the areas of your brain that light up. And what they found was that if people could articulate the emotions and feelings they were feeling, the area of their brain that lit up would change. It would move from the part of their brain that does the fight versus flight thing, where you can't actually think clearly, to the part of your brain that's your prefrontal cortex, where you think your best and clearest thoughts. And they literally, in the summary of the uh, study, said it's like naming your emotions is putting the brakes on your car. It slows you down like going to a red light. And there is a power to naming the things that we're feeling, naming the emotions that we're going through, naming the turmoil that's turning us up. And I will tell you as a pastor that I have never seen someone healed of something until they've named it first. Because what cannot be named cannot be healed. And so I'd encourage you to start here. If you're dealing with turmoil, talk to a friend, call a friend, write it down today. What is that turmoil that you're feeling? Then, number two, identify you're placed on the trust continuum. If you have your handout today, you have a little line here, and there's three dots. And what I'd encourage you to do right now is between these three dots to put an X. Where are you? Are you somebody that you don't trust at all? You're like, Scott, I, hear, I heard this 35-minute message, but I don't, it's, I don't believe it. I don't buy it. Okay, you're not entrusting. Are you struggling to trust? Are you trusting or are you somewhere in the middle? And not what you should say, but the truth. If you're like, Scott, I don't really like the answer. Let me encourage you with wisdom from my friend, Josh, Josh Reich. He says, saying you struggle to trust God and not trusting the God are not the same. The first means you've identified your battleground. So if you're like, Scott, I'm just struggling to trust, that's the place that God wants to meet you today, the same way he met his disciples in the upper room. But he can't meet you there and experience his power there and to identify where you are. And then finally, write John 14, 6 on an index card this week. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then I encourage you to read and meditate on those words each morning this week. March of 2020 was challenging for me, challenging for a lot of us. I'll tell you, I feel like the challenge just hasn't let up. It's a new day, but same challenges. And part of what frustrated me this week as I was reading this passage is I keep waiting for God to lead me into an easy season. Keep waiting for it to let up. You're all back. Very few people are wearing masks, but the challenges are still here. And if I'm honest, can I be honest for a second? I'm a little bit frustrated because I keep waiting for the sources of the turmoil to end. And then I was reminded of something this week. Alexander McLaren says, Peace does not come from the absence of trouble, but from the presence of God. Jesus said, In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Friends, we're not promised that we're going to ever have a season that's without turmoil or trouble. But we're promised that he will be present with us and that he has overcome. And that is how we make it through. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the fact that you don't disregard and dismiss our emotions. You don't disregard or dismiss the things that we're feeling. You meet us right in the middle, and you offer yourself as the answer to our turmoil. I pray for my brothers and sisters today who are in this room who are watching online, who are in the middle of turmoil today, and I pray that they would experience you in a real and powerful way. Whether their turmoil leaves or stays, I pray that they would know your peace and your presence today. Jesus, if there's somebody in this room today who has never put their faith and trust in you and they've never experienced that peace that passes all understanding, Jesus, I pray that you would start working in their heart right now to convict them that today is the day to trust you for the very first time. That you came, that they might know your presence and peace in this life and for eternity. If that's you, you could begin trusting Jesus today for the very first time. You could pray a simple prayer, inviting him into your life and trusting him. You could say, Jesus, I'm in the midst of a mess, and I need you. Today, Jesus, I, I, I throw my life and my trust on you. Would you forgive my sins and heal my wounds and begin leading me. I want to follow in your way. I want to trust you today. Thank you for meeting me, and thank you for transforming me. In your name, Jesus, amen.